that's the problem is that the, my kids see the mixer. They're like, ooh, knobs and buttons. I'm going to push all of them. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 31 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have James Uber. Boy, that is one cranky Rottweiler. Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. Ben Sherman. Hi from Houston. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and we have a special guest this week, and it's Matthew Mori. Hello, also from Houston. So, since you haven't been on the show before, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so, I got a couple degrees in uh, semiconductor physics and electrical engineering, and quickly did nothing with those degrees. And it's been a couple years working on uh, embedded electronics and a lot of C programming. And uh, iOS SDK came out and jumped into that and been doing my own apps, uh, including Buoy Explorer, which is a uh, marine conditions app for surfers and uh, water sports enthusiasts, where I implemented core data improperly there. And uh, also do a work for a company here in Houston called Chai One, where we do a lot of client work. Hey, I know them. Yeah, I've, and, I've heard uh, of those guys before. Vaguely, yeah. vaguely. My boss is a real stickler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard that a couple of times. We brought John today to talk about high-performance core data. Are there tricks to making core data perform, or does it just work, or what? Well, you can check the checkbox in the Xcode templates, and it'll generally just work. Problem is, is that it's such a complex framework, and it's just it's so flexible and large, is that it's very easy to put yourself in a bind or do the wrong thing, and then suddenly you'll have performance issues. I spent a lot of time making those mistakes, and I finally got to the point where I just wanted to figure all that out and kind of wrap my head around it. So I've been focusing on that a lot in particular. Uh, you mentioned in Buoy Explorer, you initially did it improperly. Do you want to elaborate on what mistakes you made there? Yeah, so a common pattern in apps is you have to import data, either from a user's data off of a server or just general data via JSON, XML. In Buoy Explorer's case, I'm downloading a bunch of data from these buoys that are out in the ocean, and they measure swell conditions, wind conditions. And this data is very dense. So there's readings every 15 minutes from hundreds, thousands of these buoys. So it's a large amount of data. And the way that the data is structured, I can't really uh, fetch that data in a a network-efficient way. Unfortunately, I have to grab large amounts of data at a time. And importing that data into the persistence layer or into core data takes time. The data has to be parsed, the relationships have to be made, and then it has to be saved. The first mistake, and most people make this mistake, is that they'll do these large type of operations, these import operations on the main queue or in the main manage object context. And if you're just using the built-in Xcode template, Apple's only going to give you a single manage object context. And that's always going to be on the main queue the same queue that all your UI work is done. So the first issue you always encounter is blocking the UI. Blocking the UI because you don't have all the data in place to provide to the UI? You'll be doing operations on uh, that data, and the issue is that while you're doing that work, the UI is also trying to update. So you could be scrolling in a table list, and while you're scrolling, you're also trying to import data or create objects. And so that's happening in the same queue, and you can't do two things at the same time. Gotcha. So how do you get around that? How do you make it perform? The easiest way is to create a background thread and do that work on the background thread. It's, that's a normal pattern in many performance issues. The problem is that core data 
has very strict multi-threading policies. For example, you can't, context is tied to that thread. So you can't pass objects easily between threads and between context. Uh, you can do stuff like object IDs. You can pass the ID of the object or URI representations of the object. So it's not as easy as just creating another thread and doing a bunch of work on that background thread. Uh, you have to be smart about it. With iOS 5, we got parent context. What that means is that you can set the persistent store coordinator for a context to another context. So instead of persisting something all the way to the disk, you can just take your changes up one level to the next parent. And so that allows you to do things like work on a background thread while the main thread, the UI thread, is not blocked. But it probably makes sense to take a step backwards. And what really made all of core data and performance related to core data uh, make sense to me is once I realized that it's a balance or it's an optimization problem, and really what you're trying to balance between is the amount of uh, objects you store in memory and how fast you want. So a Maverick system or a desktop system, you have much more memory at your disposal. So you can load your whole object graph into memory and still be okay. The system's not going to terminate or kill your app. Uh, and then since all the objects are in memory, they're going to be much faster. Obviously, in memory, objects are way faster than objects persisted on disk. But at the result of you're using more memory. On iOS or mobile device where you're memory constrained, it's not feasible to load everything into memory. So you're forced to do this batching or fetching of objects. And so some objects will live in memory, but some of their attributes won't or will be faulted. Once I understood that core data is really a balance between memory and speed and where you lie on that continuum is really the choice you have to make. You mentioned importing data, like large amounts of data. How do you deal with making sure you don't import the same data twice? So there's sort of like that insert or update pattern or problem rather that you run into, like if you import from a CSV file and you maybe you don't have a way to exclude things you already had. Uh, how do you handle patterns like that? Yeah, so find or create algorithm is pretty much uh, used everywhere in software. And so the naive way to do that would be to go through your new data, your JSON blurb, and for each dictionary in that JSON, extract a, a unique identifier or a GUID of some sort, and then query the core data stack or the core data layers to see if that object already exists. And if it does, then it's an update. Uh, if it doesn't, then you need to create a new object. You can enumerate all across all the objects and do that. The problem with that technique is that you're fetching one object at a time. And when you fetch one object at a time, you're going to possibly hitting the disk every time. You'll quickly see slow performance immediately from doing something like that. So really, you should use a more efficient find or create algorithm. More efficient, meaning that you can, instead of hitting the disk every time, you should really batch those fetches. So if you have a 1,000 objects you're enumerating over, maybe you do 100 at a time. And so instead of doing 1,000 fetches that hit the disk, you're only doing 10. And so you could, in batches, go through each of those sets. And really, that's going to be dependent on the app. You have to fudge that number until you find one that works best. So you just so you uh, think, like, maybe grabbing the IDs of those 10 items and just checking to see if you know, if any of those 10 exist, and if so, which ones they were, or like if we were talking in terms of SQL statements, right, it would get translated as something like, you know, select star from buoys where ID equals 55, and then you check to see if you got a result back, and if you did, then you have to update it, otherwise you'd have to insert it. Would you do something, you know, slightly different, just checking the existence of many IDs at a time for that batch? 
Yeah, so in SQL terms, you would be performing uh, an in operation. Uh, so you could separate out your new data, your imported data into these batches, grab from the first batch all 10 or 100 unique identifiers, whatever they are. And then with those identifiers, you can create a, a predicate, uh, which translates into a SQL statement uh, using the in keyword. And then you'll only fetch objects from the persistent store that are in that batch. That sounds good. So when you're trying to figure out your batch size, do you talk about doing things just trial and error? Does like the size of the object that you're trying to return, does that have an effect? Or how else can you kind of determine the right batch size to do? I think it's really important to measure when you're talking about core data. Measure, 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 measure. Because a lot of stuff is it's not very clear, and you got to use the tools to do these things. So before I make any changes, the first thing I'll do is measure it make the change, and then go back and verify that change happened. So instruments is the best way to do this. One of the templates is the core data template, and I like to add the time profiler in there as well. And with that, you can measure how long your fetches or your saves or your faults are taking. The batch size really is a function of how much memory you want to use and how fast you want it to be. And there's no right answer to that. I found in general of... Uh, if you divide by 10 is a good batch size, but really just depends on how big your entities are. If you're storing large photo blobs, then that batch size is going to be, need to be much smaller. If it's just a bunch of strings and it's uh, really small, then that batch size can increase. So it's really how much do those objects take up in memory. You mentioned the photo blob thing. You know, of being very sort of naive on core data, I saw that and immediately wanted to avoid it because it seems like if you're, you know, fetching these objects for display in a table and then say you tap on one and then you see the detail for that item and and one of the properties on that entity is like an ns data uh, representing photo data is there anything like built in that will not load in every image for every entity or would you have to specifically say okay don't load that i guess the way you would do it if you were just using pure SQL, would be to maybe store the, the a large blob like a photo externally on the file system and maintain a path or a URL to that file. With Core Data, you can specify how to treat a large blob. You can say use external storage, and Core Data will decide if it wants to store those bits actually in the SQL database or if it just wants to store a URL or a path to that photo or that binary blob. Uh, and yeah, the URL can... definitely is more in line with what I've implemented in the past. If you let Core Data manage it, like I'm, I'm worried about like select performance of a single entity. Uh, would you structure this in a way where you're, you tell it which properties to fetch, or would you just move the photo storage off into its own entity and reference it? It depends on the app. If you have a, a table-based app where you want to show a thumbnail of an image in every single row, the best option in that situation is to take that large photo blob and put it off as its own entity. Because really, you only need that full-size photo, that full-quality photo, when you're in a detail view or you're zooming in to that picture. Uh, when you're in the right. table list, you just need the thumbnails. And so in that situation, I would make a low-quality version of that thumbnail that's much smaller, and I would store that in the database, but there would still be a relationship to a separate entity that is the full quality photo. And I would let Core Data decide how to manage that second entity, the photo entity. If it wants to put that large blob in the database, that's fine. If it wants to persist it out to disk and just maintain a URL, that's fine as well. So because you'd typically be only selecting one of those, right? Yeah, it'd be one at a time. 
Those are really two orthogonal questions, whether you store the, the image on, you know, in an external file and whether you put it in, a, in its own entity at the other end of a relationship are kind of separate questions that have different implications, right? Uh, yeah, I guess, could you elaborate? Uh, what do you mean? What, what well, is it orthogonal about? What's the issue? Well, not storing a file in the database means that it's not, partly it keeps your database size smaller, whether that's important or not is another question, but it seems like even if you just store the, the big data in, at the other end of a relationship, that in and of itself makes it so that that data will not be faulted in unless you actually access that relationship, as opposed to being faulted in as soon as you access any attribute on the parent entity. Yes and no. Uh, it depends on how you're doing the fetches on the entities. So you don't have to fetch all the objects. You can tell what properties or what attributes of that object you want to fetch and everything else would be a fault. You can also just grab object IDs from it. Uh, so Core Data gives you the options to determine how much of that entity is going to actually be fetched. Okay. And we're still sort of talking about the scenario where you're trying to do create and find, right? Yeah, I mean, well, this isn't in particular just to create and find. This is just a, if you already have the data in the app or you're shipping it with the app, you still wouldn't want full-size photos in that primary entity, especially if you're in a table list and you're scrolling through thousands of these. You'd still want that off in a separate relationship. I think that makes sense. One thing that I'm wondering about is that core data, from what I understand, is more an API that wraps whatever uh, you know query language or whatever it uses to actually talk to the database. So do you have some of the fine-grained control that we're used to with a lot of the other uh, relational databases where you can set indices and things like that so that when you do a query, it's real fast against a large set of data? You can set indexes on a core data store, but no, you can't do it. Pretty much that's all you get. You can tell it which ones are indexes, but other than that, uh, you can't do much. And that's primary because it's such a, a, a SQLite isn't the only Right. A persistent store. It can be XML in memory. It can be. It cannot be persistent as well. It could be just in memory. And then uh, recently we've gotten an asynchronous store, and so you can do crazy things like use plist files and the file manager to be your persistent store. Yeah, I think a lot of times people talk about core data as if it's Apple's API for SQL, but that's not true. It's Apple's data persistence API, mm-hmm. and the fact that it most often uses SQL is really kind of just it most often uses SQL. I feel like that's one of the problems. Like, you know, at some levels, like things that abstract SQL away from you can be the leakiest of abstractions because I think it's, you know, prevalent in core data as with any technology that talks to a database and uh, walks relationships. Say you had like a customer that had an address that was like a, a one-to-one relationship and you were displaying the list of customers and displaying the address in the same list. And if you had 100 customers, then you'd have one query to pull in the list of 100 customers and then one query per row as you walk that relationship to execute a statement against the database, right? So you have that standard, you know, select n plus one problem. And there's ways to get around it in Core Data by saying the, what is it called? Set additional relationships to fetch. So you can tell it, okay, I want to also pull in the addresses for all these customers. And in the database, that'll you know, it'll do either two queries or a join or whatever it thinks. But still, you know, you have to be aware that that's an issue. Well, I don't think you should think of Core Data as a persistence layer. That's one of its features. I think you should think of it as a model layer, as an object graph, so to speak. Uh, it's really good at relationships. And it's really good at living in the Cocoa world. 
one of its features is persistence. And you're right. You have to pretend that it's not SQL because then you start trying to do SQL-like optimizations that don't really make sense in a core data world. Yeah, how many talks on core data start up saying, core data is not ORM, but I'm going to explain stuff in like pure ORM language. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it is the most common persistent store for core data is SQL, I think does give an advantage though, because you can pass certain launch arguments like SQL debug, which will give you the actual SQL statements out in the output of the debugger, and you can see what the SQL statements are. Then you can take that SQL statement, and you can actually go find the SQLite file on disk and use any SQL tool you want or the command line and actually look into that SQL file and see kind of what's going on and maybe see why stuff is taking longer than you think it should. What about just general query performance? Like, because we know that SQLite's under the hood, the way you structure queries can have an impact on performance, especially with very large data sets. Are there any tips we can do to speed up specific queries? Yeah, definitely. Computers are good at with numbers, so anytime you're doing any kind of queries uh, and you structure that query with a predicate, you should definitely do a numerical comparison first. The equals, the greaters, less than those type of comparisons. Any light comparison should happen first. Uh, string comparisons in particular are very expensive and should be avoided at all, if you can at all. You should never do string comparisons if you can help it. If you have to do string comparison, there are some options. You can normalize the strings or conicalize the strings, which basically removes the diacritics and case sensitivity. And you can store off a normalized version of your string, like a comments field or some description field. You can store that off as a separate attribute on that managed object that's been normalized. And then when you do a searching or a query, on that field, you would search the normalized version instead of the actual text. So I, I don't completely understand what you said there. I mean, I, I understand that you're saying basically to, you say to like remove capitalization and things like that, but the other parts I didn't quite follow. So the order of operations definitely matter. Numerical comparisons like greater than or lesser than first. So for example, if you had a context app or an address book app and you wanted all your friends that are older than the age of 30 and named Bob, you would want to do the older than 30 comparison first, and then the string comparison of people that are named Bob second. And that's because the numerical comparison is very efficient on a computer, and the string comparison may have to fire up a regular expression engine and takes time, much more time. And so the idea there is that you're filtering out the people over 30 first, and so you're doing string comparison on the less rows. Yeah, correct. So the, the heavy loading, the heavy comparison of the strings is happening on a smaller data set, so it'll take less time. Do you ever use like hashing of a string, if you want to do a lookup like that? Does that ever make sense? If you're, we're talking about comparing strings and increasing that performance, is the first thing that tries to normalize the strings, and you can do that with a custom setter on the entity. So anytime you set the comments or description string, you could also set a normalized version of that string on the entity. And if that's not good enough, the next step would be to separate that string or that sentence of strings into tokens or separated by white space. And then you can use the begins with or ends with technique of searching the string so you don't have to do a matches or a regular expression match. And then you can search tokens, which is much quicker. And you'll still have to use a, a relationship. So there is a hit there. But that's much faster. And then again, if that's still too slow, I think your last option you should pursue is an in-memory hash. 
you would still need to tokenize the strings or the comments or the description, but then you could only store the first three letters of each of those tokens in a hash in memory. And even if you have millions of strings in the database, a hash of only the first three letters of each token is going to be pretty quick. Talking about the tokens, are those so like a dictionary? How are those uh, stored? In this example, a token would just be a word. So if you have some string, you could separate it on white space and normalize those strings or remove the capitalization and diacritics. So each word would be its own object or token, and it would have a, a relationship back to the original entity where it came from. And the idea here is that if you put these tokens off into a separate entity that are normalized and cleaned up, it's going to be more performant to search that instead of pulling every single object into memory and searching all of the content in a non-normalized way. Okay, so we've got a separate entity that has kind of information on, let's say, a sentence. It's five words. Now, is that going to be five separate tokens, or you just normalize it and put it in one string? You could do it both ways. If you're going to go this far down the rabbit hole, you might as well separate it by white space, and you would have five entities for the five words in a string. Okay, so each entity can be a way to look up what's happening. Right, and what this allows you to do is use begins with and ends with predicates, which are much quicker than a contains or matches. So it begins with is just going to do you know a quick comparison between the first letter of the word you're comparing against, then the second letter, then the third letter. Uh, so that's much quicker than trying to do a matches or a contains or a regular expression type of match. Okay, very cool. The problem is, is when a user is searching, you don't know if they're searching for a word that's in the middle of the sentence, the end of the sentence, the beginning of the sentence. So you can't just do a begins with if you don't separate it into individual words or tokens. Are there systems or good ways of doing that on iOS? We have a couple C, C functions that uh, enable this behavior, but there's no standard support. It's kind of you have to rule your own. The C functions are called CF string normalize and CF string fold. And so with CF string fold, you can pass an option such as case insensitive, diacritic insensitive, width insensitive. Um, and then you can also pass it one of the normalization forms, uh, which the most popular one I think is form D. And I'm not quite sure on what the different forms mean, but I know form D is kind of the most popular one. What other wrong ways are there to do core data? Setting up your concurrency model or the way that you interact with core data is a common place you can kind of go wrong. Apple gives you the simple single manage object context, and that usually works for most situations. But if you need to start doing large import operations or other work, uh, your concurrency model is probably going to need to change, and you're going to need to use multiple manage object contexts. And so you have multiple ways of doing that. You can use the parent-child uh, technique, where one child has a, another context as its persistent store coordinator or its parent. Uh, or you can do the more classical example would be where you have two separate contexts that are kind of equals and they share a persistence store coordinator and they're not nested. Uh, have you used uh, either of those? Well, I ran into this problem last week. We were using a child context, not three levels deep, but just a main context on the main queue and then a private queue or a private context that we created when we needed it to do a big import and then saved the data from private context back up to the main context and then to disk. And that turned out to be really slow, so I switched to using two separate contexts that share a persistent store coordinator and then merging with the merge changes from managed object context did save notification. And it was much, much faster. So 
it turned out to be a huge difference in terms of performance of the save, and it really was not, not that much harder. So I thought that the API for private context, private child context, was easier, and that's why we went with that in the first place. But it actually turned out that doing it sort of the old-fashioned way with two separate contexts was not really any more difficult. There's not even any extra lines of code in the end. So in your first attempt, the first way you did it, you had the main manage object context, and then that saved directly to the persistent store coordinator. And then when you needed it, you would create a child context or a private queue off of that one. Is that how that stack was? Right, that's true. And so in that situation, you're still blocking. Uh, When you do that save on the main queue, that save to disk is still going to be blocking. And one way you can relieve that save or make an asynchronous save in that situation is by adding a third context. And so you would have your child import queue or your worker queue, and its parent would be your main manage object context or your main queue where the UI work is. Yet another manage object context that you could call the writer manage object context or the private background uh, writer manage object context. And that's the one that actually would save to disk. And in that situation, you're persisting to disk would actually be asynchronous because you're using a private queue to do that work, but you would still have a block anytime you're trying to read from disk while that writing is taking place. And that's because the persistent store coordinator serializes all requests. So what's involved in keeping all these changes between the different contexts in sync? What kind of code do you have to write to do that? If we're talking about this child-parent context technique, Really, you don't have to do anything. Uh, you just have to make sure you perform your operations on the same queue as that context. And you can do that by using the perform block API. And Cordae is going to handle all of that. They know the persistent store coordinators is where your object IDs live. And that's really the way uh, Cordata kind of tracks all these objects. And since you're using the same persistent store coordinator and these contexts are children of a parent context, it just all works. There is no issue Uh, transferring the data back and forth. If you're going the route of using two separate contexts that are equal, that are not a child or parent relationship, but they do share a persistent store coordinator, in that situation, uh, it's best to use notifications to pass changes between them. Uh, You can still use object IDs between the two contexts, and you can also use URI representations between the two contexts. You can't pass the actual object between them, but it's easy to grab the object once you have the ID. And in that case, one of the contexts does save, it posts a notification. And if you want the other context to do something with those changes, uh, Cordata provides you an easy method to do that. Uh, merge changes from notifications is the actual method. Okay, do you roll your own notifications or are these provided for you? They're provided for you. There's a, a will save and a did save notification. The did save notification is usually the most valuable one. If you're rolling your own syncing service or an incremental store or you're trying to do something with iCloud, the will save notification becomes important. Uh, and that's because during the will save notification, you're notified of what objects are dirty, what objects have changed, what objects are inserted. But during the did save notification, some of the data might have failed uh, validation or might have been modified, it's hard to keep track of that. So in certain situations, you want to use will save, but most situations you want to use did save. Okay, so in your main context, you'll just put a hook in there for will save and do your validations and make sure everything is correct. Exactly. The reason we have so many concurrency models really goes back to the fact that the persistent store coordinator 
is a serial cue and you can't read and write at the same time from it. And so we try to get creative and create all these different type of models that'll alleviate certain pain points. And so when we're using child and parent context, it kind of alleviates that asynchronous save to the persistent store. But then you have the issue of all your data has to push between each context. When we use the sibling type of concurrency model uh, where they're both equals, the trade-off there is that you don't have that easy way of notifying the other contacts. You do have to manually merge those changes in. And with uh, the recent release of Mavericks and iOS 7, there's a way to get around that persistent store coordinator locking. Can you tell us about that? So if you're using SQLite, the way it actually stores data to disk has traditionally been journaling mode. And with the recent version of Mavericks and iOS 7, they enabled the write-ahead logging. And so it's like a transactional type of way to persist these data. So each change is like a transaction that can be performed. And so with write-ahead logging, you get concurrent reads. So you can have multiple reads from your SQLite file at the same time and one single concurrent write at the same time. Persistent store coordinator is still going to serialize all requests that come through it. Reads or write, they're always going to be serial. But you can have as many persistent store coordinators as you want. And they can all talk to the same persistent store file. And because the persistent store file now, uh, if you're using SQLite and it's using write-ahead logging, which it is by default with iOS 7 and Mavericks, uh, then you get concurrent reads and one write. Uh, there's a lot of gotchas, though, with that. And I don't recommend it unless you really, really, really need that last bit of performance. And the reason is, is that if you have two separate persistent store coordinators, you pretty much have to almost treat it as if it's two completely separate coordinated stacks. And you can't pass object, I object IDs because that's related to the persistent store coordinator. You can't definitely can't pass objects. Uh, relationships don't really work. But what you can do is use URI representations. So that will work between the two. What does the URI look like? Good question. Just a way to persist that object across the system. Um, I'm not sure. I've actually never uh, looked at the actual string that it generates. I'm assuming it's going to be the hex object ID, which is just going to be a long hexadecimal number, followed by some kind of delimiter, like a colon or something, and each of the attributes values. All right. Well, it's been a pretty good discussion. I know that uh, some of us have some time constraints today, so we're going to have to start wrapping it up. But thanks for coming and talking to us about Core Data. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, enjoy the show. And I always like talking about Core Data, which might sound weird. <laughs> yeah, and sorry for the, the technical <laughs> issues on my end. But let's go ahead and get into the picks. Uh, ben, do you want to start us off with the picks? Uh, sure. I just have one pick today. And that is at Chai One, we have uh, some remote workers. And we always try to, you know, do things in, in our culture or in our company to help enable uh, remote workers to be more effective and be more part of the office. Uh, and one of those things that we've done recently is we uh, secured a iPad telepresence robot. You can find these at doublerobotics.com. Uh, they're pretty expensive, uh, but it's a little robot on a stand. And literally somebody else in a web browser across the world uses the iPad camera and the internet connectivity uh, through a web browser and they can use arrow keys like, you know, kind of like you're playing Doom, you know, W-A-S-N-D. You can move the robot around the office and you can raise and lower the, the stand to make yourself taller or shorter. And it's pretty creepy, but uh, kind of a cool addition to, you know, a workplace that supports remote workers. So that's my pick. Awesome. Andrew, what are your picks? 
I have two picks today. The first one is Mercurial, and Mercurial is sort of like Git. It's a distributed source control system, and I am not going to talk about the differences between Mercurial and Git, but we use Mercurial at Mixed in Key, and I, I really like the UI, and I've, uh, the, the command line UI, and I've switched to using it for my, for my personal projects. And the second one is relevant to our talk today, but it actually it really helped me this week. So it's a, it's a blog post by Florian Kugler called Backstage with Nested Managed Object Context, and he actually, he actually disassembled the core data framework into assembly to, to work out some of the reason why the child context stack method is less efficient for certain things than having two separate contexts with the same persistent store coordinator. It was just kind of a low-level dive on that that I thought was really interesting and also useful. Those are my picks. All right, Jane, what are your picks? So I'm going to make an audio pick today. So a, fr- a good friend of mine bought like an old 70s audio file record player. So I thought to myself, I'm going to get my record player back working again. So turns out the thing I bought at a pawn shop in like the 90s is actually reasonable. So I called up a place, uh, the Needle Doctor, which is like the old hi-fi shop in town. They're on, uh, they're online, so you go to needledoctor.com. But actually, they helped me pick out a really nice new cartridge, uh, which I put on my record player. It sounds pretty amazing. It's a very forgiving for old scratchy vinyl for someone like me who just bought records when they were kind of cheap and kind of scratched up. But yeah, it really sounds great. Uh, the cartridge is Grado by Grado. It's called uh, the Grado Black. It's like 60 bucks. So for a, kind of an upgrade on your system, it's really a very good value for what I paid for it. So I, I recommend that. Good choice. I have a Grado Gold on my okay. turntable, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Grado's cartridges. So Yeah, my records sound a lot better than I thought they did. I thought they'd be all scratched up. Almost sounds as good as a CD, but I'm not going there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know there's some diehard vinyl people out there that nothing sounds as good as vinyl. So anyway. They uh, both hate me right now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't own any vinyl, so there you go. Anyway, um, so my picks actually go along with what uh, Ben was talking about. I've been listening to a book on Audible. It's called Remote. Um, It's by David Heinemeyer Hansen and Jason Freed. And they're the guys that wrote Rework, and they just talk about uh, the the trends and the benefits and the trade-offs to remote working, and they give a lot of pointers on how to do it, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. So uh, I'm going to pick that book, and I'll pick Audible as well. Just an awesome service, and I, I really enjoy listening to audiobooks. So, in fact, I, I was uh, stealing my wife's uh, credits on her Audible account, so she made me get my own. But uh, anyway, Matthew, what are your picks? Uh, so three picks. The first one would be a uh, self-pick, highperformancecoredata.com. I'm trying to create a resource of performance problems related to core data and solutions. And so uh, if you have an issue, definitely get in touch and we can try and uh, get something up there. Uh, second pick is NPR, the Planet Money podcast. Uh, a lot of times we kind of get wrapped up in... Uh, technical podcast, and although I won't miss an iFreaks episode, uh, I also won't miss a Planet Money episode. Uh, the third pick is the Cordata Second Edition by Marcus Zara. Uh, that's one of the Pragmatic Programmers books, and uh, by far that is one of the best uh, Objective C books. The way it's written and the way it takes you through a implementing Cordata and and all the pitfalls that come with it. Uh, it's a really great book. If you do anything with Core Data, you should get the book by Marcus Sara. Awesome. 
All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Um, let everybody get to the stuff that they have going on today. And we'll catch you all next week.